1: The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com wondersuite.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me Saul David and Patrick Bishop. The big news this week is that Ukraine continues to make important gains on the battlefield, particularly south of Bakhmut and in western Zaporizhzhia, and also to degrade Russia's defensive capability in Crimea, as part of a wider strategy to wrest back control of the Northern Black Sea. Away from the battlefield, President Joe Biden doubled down on his support for Ukraine by telling a meeting of the United Nations General Assembly that no nation can be secure if, and I quote, we allow Ukraine to be carved up.
1: And in Russia, opposition figures are spreading reports that Vladimir Putin's staunch ally, Ramzan Kadyrov, the brutal Chechen, has either died in hospital or is seriously ill. Meanwhile, imprisoned Russian ultranationalist Igor Girkin has predicted the collapse of Putin's regime and compared the inevitable domestic unrest to the troubles in 17th century Russia that preceded the rise of the Romanov dynasty. Slightly less encouraging news for Ukraine is that according to RUSI, the uh, London-based think tank, a pro-Russia party is set to win the upcoming election in Slovakia, which is a member of the EU, where there are said to be more than 250 disinformation peddling and largely pro-Moscow media outlets, as well as up to 2,000 Facebook pages pushing the same line. Well, we'll discuss the possible ramifications of all this, but first uh, the battlefield news. So what can you tell us?
0: Well, the big news is that Ukraine has liberated two key settlements south of Bakhmut, and that is Kleshivka and Andrivka, that may, in the opinion of the Institute for the Study of War, have degraded the Russian defence in that area and rendered as many as three Russian brigades combat ineffective. Ukrainian Ground Forces Commander General Sersky noted that the settlements were keystones of the Russian Bakhmut-Horlivka defensive line, which had now been breached. One of his spokesmen added that the Ukrainian army's liberation of Kleshivka gave it fire control over Russian ground lines of communication supplying Russian forces in the Bakhmut area. The implication of all of this is that these forces will, as the ISW puts it, struggle to replenish their combat strength and defend against any further Ukrainian offensive activities south of Bakhmut. But Ukraine is also advancing in the vital western Zaporizhia Oblast near Robertinye, with the road and rail hub of Tokmak as its immediate objective. They have, for example, made inroads into the settlement of Verbove, widening their original breach along a 2.6 kilometer section of the Russian defensive positions. Ukrainian officials have suggested that the series of Russian lines currently ahead of the Ukrainian advance may be less challenging because Russian forces had concentrated the majority of their combat power at the forward positions which have already been breached. These Russian forces, needless to say, have suffered heavy losses. Now, the Ukrainian successes have prompted the Russians in turn to move the so-called elite troops of the 83rd Separate Guards Air Assault Brigade from the Bakhmut area to this sector, which may in turn have played its part in the fall of Kleshivka, which the 83rd had been defending. So you really need to see the battlefield as one continuous whole. And if the Ukrainians are pushing in one area or fixing the Russians in one area, it's it's making them more vulnerable somewhere else. Well, we mentioned last week, Patrick, that the Ukrainian strategy of targeting Russian ground and naval forces in the Crimea and the Black Sea was beginning to yield results. Well, we've seen more of that, haven't we?
1: Uh, Yes, we have. But before that, I'd just like to say uh, two things. One is you're absolutely right uh, to describe the 83rd Guards Air Assault Brigade as a so-called elite unit. The Russian airborne forces have been very hard hit in this war. And I don't believe that the replacement troops can properly be described as elite, as they'll have had nothing like the training needed to get them up to what the West would regard as an elite force. Uh, the fact they're being used to shore up the frontline defenses uh, can only mean that the Russians are in trouble here. Uh, second, I just want to reference a video that we were alerted to by a listener, Carl Larson, uh, which shows very starkly the reality of the front lines around Bakhmut. This is from the Ukrainian perspective. Carl uh, served with the International Legion of Ukraine Volunteer Force, and the action was shot on a helmet-mounted GoPro by one of the fighters a few weeks back, and it tracks an incident when a small squad of legionnaires uh, mounted in a vehicle run over a Russian mine. Now, you really ought to look at it. It's quite extraordinary as the action is then intercut with a view uh, from a Russian drone. I can't read out the, the whole line here, but if you search Mad Dog Team or Team Kilo hitting mine near Bakhmut" on YouTube, it will come up. It makes for very dramatic and rather disturbing viewing. Anyway, thanks for that, Carl. Well, back to the Black Sea. According to the news outlet, Ukrainska Pravda, which got close links with the uh, Ukrainian Security Service, the Ukrainian Security Service, the SBU and the Ukrainian Navy conducted a unique special operation that destroyed a Russian S-400 Triumph air defense system near Yev. In uh, Crimea on the 14th of September. Now, these, of course, are very, very important. These, these are sort of anti missile missiles. So they're crucial to the air defenses uh, of Crimea. Now, what happened was that they, they fired off a load of drones, 11 drones. All of them were shot down. But that was really to, to degrade the Russian air defenses, opening the way for the firing of two uh, Neptune anti ship missiles. Now, these destroyed. This S 400 battery, and they cost an enormous amount of money. This is $625 million worth of kit. And of course, it's the second strike on uh, an S 400 in recent weeks. Uh, the last one you remember we were talking about last week was carried out by a uh, Storm Shadow, British supplied Storm Shadow cruise missile. So this leaves the, well, the Crimea, but more specifically the Black Sea fleet, hugely exposed. Now, on the same day, there were some su- successful naval drone strikes against two Russian patrol ships actually at sea in the, in the southwestern quarter of Black Sea. Corvette was was very damaged, and this was near the entrance to Sevastopol Bay. I think we've decided to revert to Sevastopol, haven't we, So We'll be talking about that later. We've had a response about uh, our pronunciation, which is quite amusing. Anyway... So all this will actually help the Ukrainians greatly on the, on the grain export front, uh, which is already improving, actually. There have been a number of sailings through the Black Sea Maritime Corridor in recent weeks. Now, just a quick further reference to um, what's coming out of Russia, bad news uh, in terms of state propaganda terms. There's a former deputy commander of the Southern Military District a Lieutenant General Andrei Gurulev, who is also a, a deputy in the Duma, now, he's, uh, he's quite been voluble in the past, I believe, but he, he's published a telegram message that condemned lying in the Russian military communiques and also lamenting the damage that Ukrainian air defenses are inflicting on Russian helicopters, along with a lot of the other stuff. So, what do you make of uh, Garulev's comments?
0: Well, they were odd, really, aren't they? It's more of the same to a certain extent. I mean, Gurulev, after all, was the man who leaked the audio message from Major General Ivan Popov, the former commander of the 58th Combined Arms Army. Who was sacked after complaining about a lack of support for his troops? Now Popov apparently was very popular, so this didn't go down very well with his men, and they are the the troops who are defending chiefly in the western Zaporizhia area, this crucial battlefield area. But the point about more effective Ukrainian air defences negating Russian attack helicopters is significant, I think, Patrick, because. Of course, those attack helicopters were being used against the armour that was used at the start of the counteroffensive, where we go back a month or so ago. Uh, and this significance, i.e. the fact that they can't use the attack hel- helicopters in quite the same way, but might become even more relevant if Ukrainian commanders decide to deploy their armoured reserves, including, of course, Abrams tanks, which apparently they're just getting delivery of now, after They've broken through the main Russian defensive lines, and that, of course, could be imminent. Now, in other matters, uh, President Joe Biden has signaled that America's support for Ukraine was unwavering with a speech at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. He said that no nation can be secure if, and I quote, we allow Ukraine to be carved up And of course, all of this is an attempt to rally international support for Kyiv's effort to repel Russian aggression, as we know. His rhetoric, though, wasn't just for an international audience. It was also partly directed towards an American audience, where a wing of the Republican Party, we've mentioned this many times, is threatening to reduce US aid for Ukraine. Now, here's an interesting point. Biden's administration has asked Congress to greenlight an additional $24 billion in security and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. But the Republicans who control the House have all but ignored that request as lawmakers scramble to ensure government funding continues beyond September. And this point, actually, interesting enough, Patrick, I saw in a separate article, is really important because... When we talk about the delay of all these various weapons systems to Ukraine from America, there's this kind of assumption, well, you know, it was to do with escalation and it was to do with, you know, making sure they had enough kit in their own arsenals. Actually, apparently this Republican control of Congress is really vital to understanding why there's been this drip feed of this equipment. Biden, by the way, at that same address, was also keen to downplay the danger of war with China by saying that Beijing and Washington needed to cooperate on climate and that the partnerships that America was fostering around the globe, from Asia to the Indo-Pacific, were not about containing any country. And that, of course, is a clear reference to Beijing. Okay, back to Russia. What, Patrick, have you heard about our old friend Ramzan Kadyrov?
1: Well, uh, the rumours, there are always rumours, aren't there, <laughs> where uh, he is concerned. Uh, he's run Chechnya for the for the Kremlin, essentially, for the uh, last 15 years. Well, the news is he might have um, joined his fellow psychopath, Yevgeny Prigozhin, in Valhalla or Hades or wherever you, wherever these guys go. Um, the whole rumour started turning last Friday when a Chechen opposition channel wrote that Kadyrov was in a coma. There have also been stories he's actually dead. But uh, the rumors got um, quite a lot of oxygen from the Ukrainian military intelligence, who seemed to be very much stirring the, the mud, shall we put it, uh, whenever they can on these occasions. And they jumped in and said, yes, indeed, Kadyrov was in a critical condition. Well, that prompted um, media counterattack from Kadyrov's camp. They posted two videos of him walking in the rain, looked a bit puffy in the face and a bit sort of breathless but he uh, came back saying um, I strongly recommend that everyone who cannot distinguish the truth from lies on the internet go for a walk get some fresh air and put their thoughts in order now it it wasn't that it was no evidence that this was actually taken on the day it was uh, or near the day that it was posted so it doesn't really clear matters up if he is a goner then it's obviously very bad news for Putin because, you know, he's been a staunch supporter, okay, he's, he, he's made a few critical noises, but as as always with these sort of people who, who pipe up in this way, it's about how the war isn't being prosecuted properly, not that the war is a bad thing per se. But if he does go, then Chechnya is a very unstable place. There's all sorts of people will be jostling around, vying to take over from him, including some uh, Wahhabi element, that's to say you know, militant, extreme Islamist groups. So the last thing I would have thought Putin wants is an Islamic militant threat uh, on his on the border of Russia proper. So yeah, I mean, I would have thought that if he is dead, it's extremely bad news. Also, more we mentioned this a bit earlier, this sort of uh, criticism coming from internal people you would imagine were supporters and Igor Girkin, who has been a bit of a maverick all all along the line. He's now in jail, but his lawyer put out a statement from him saying that uh, the Kremlin's basically in deep doo the what he calls the bureaucratic oligarchic system is on the point of collapse. It was his duty, Gyrkin said, to actually point this out to other patriots like himself and to start seeking around for a suitable alternative. Well, I would have thought this was um, pretty dangerous talk from Gieckin. Um He's in a jail. He's, he's uh, completely vulnerable to whatever Putin wants to do to him. But once again... A sign that, you know, that the real threat to the Putin regime is coming from the ultra-nationalists at this point, not from any sort of, you know, liberal democratic reformists.
0: Yeah, and and the other important bit of news away from the battlefield, Patrick, slightly alarming this uh, as far as the Ukrainian camp is concerned, is that in Slovakia, there's a possibility that some pro-Russian elements may actually take power. Now, if you go back to Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022, Slovakia was fully committed to defending Ukraine's sovereignty and per capita it has been since then one of Kiev's staunchest supporters and was one of the first NATO countries to deliver fighter jets. Now, you know, just to stress the point, it's not only a member of the EU, it's also a member of NATO. But if the polls are correct, the likely winner of the country's general election on the 30th of September is Robert Fico, a man who praises Moscow and models himself on Viktor Orban, the far right authoritarian leader of neighboring Hungary, another maverick from within the EU. Now, how is this about turn possible? Well, according to the Bratislava based think tank Globsec, which monitors former communist states, an incredible 50% of Slovaks consider the US rather than Russia to be a security risk, while only 40% of them actually blame Russia for the war. So you've really got to split down the middle in Slovakian society. Almost three quarters, uh, and so maybe it's not such a big split, consider Russia their brother nation and are bought into the idea of a Slav brotherhood. Current president, Zuzana Kaputova, an environmental activist and lawyer who was really representative of the pro-Western faction within Slovakia, blames a pro-Russian information storm for this assault on good government. Now, if you're an optimist, uh, you might think that election campaigns in Slovakia often produce dramatic last-minute swings, so that could happen. And even if Fico does win, he might be persuaded by other members of the EU to moderate his pro-Russian position. But of course, the opposite could also be the case.
1: Okay, before we take the break, I just want to mention some news that was around at the beginning of the week that uh, President Zelensky has fired all six of his deputy defence ministers. Uh, No real explanation was given. Among them, of course, was Hannah Maliar, who we often quoted on the pod, but presumably we won't be hearing from her anymore. Now, this, of course, is just after the sacking, two weeks after the sacking of the longtime Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov over ongoing corruption allegations at the ministry. Now, concerns are pretty widespread, aren't they, about uh, corruption? And this sort of stuff just really feeds that narrative, doesn't it, Saul?
0: Yeah. I mean, again, Patrick, you can see this in two ways. Um, Of course, we should have mentioned that Zelensky has also uh, just spoken at the United Nations General Assembly. And it may have been that before his trip to America, where, of course, he's trying to shore up international support for Ukraine, he was sending out another signal that he's prepared to clear uh, the Orgean stables in Ukraine of anyone who is not pulling their weight as far as the war effort's concerned. Now, there's no direct connection between these sackings and corruption, but you can make up your own minds about this. As I've said many times, Patrick, it's the willingness of Zelensky and others to take these hard decisions that is in many ways quite impressive. And we should also make the distinction between the Ministry of Defence, which is really about procurement and supply, and battlefield performance. You'll have noticed, Patrick, that none of the senior commanders uh, since the start of this war have been sacked Complete opposite, of course, is the case in the Russian military. So that tells you, generally speaking, that uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians generally are pretty pleased with the performance of their commanders, not so much those bureaucrats who are supplying the army.
1: Yeah, I think this is also a, a message to, to his own people, isn't it? I mean, uh, this, is, this is part of who Zelensky is. We shouldn't forget how he came to power. He came to power via a TV comedy show, which you can see in the West, Servant of the People, actually he's pretty funny in which he plays a history teacher who's filmed by one of his students ranting about government corruption. And it's uploaded, it goes viral, and and, uh, the teacher ends up president. So this is really at the heart of Zelensky's identity and his political message. And yes, he has to signal to the US that their money is not being wasted, but he also has to tell his people that he's still who he says he is. Anyway, that's enough for this half We're gonna take a break. Do join us in part two when, as ever, we'll be answering listeners' questions. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. Generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
1: Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at Canva.com, designed for work. Canva! (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back. Well, the first question is from Masayuki Iwasa from Japan. And Masayuki says, since my name is too complicated to say, just call me MK. Well, I think I've given it a pretty good shot there. I hope you do too. Anyway, really, what's the question is here is, why is, is the war slipping down the news agenda? The uh, Masayuki says, when the conflict started, it was a hit here in Japan, uh, idea, i.e. as a news item. And now I see more ramen commercials than I do coverage of the war. So what do you guys think? Does the war need to be known more to the world or is a news item or two here or there enough? I'd love to hear your opinions. What do you think, Saul?
0: Well, I'm just glad you did the pronunciation, Patrick, although Masayuki did actually say he was perfectly happy for us to butcher his name. And by us, I think he means me. Um, this message from Masuyuki is exactly the reason we're doing the podcast, because, of course, it is inevitable that in a lot of Western countries, uh, and I include Japan in that, there is going to be a certain amount of war weariness where it is going to slip off the news agenda. And uh, I can't tell you how many people contact us and say thank you for keeping us constantly up to date with what's going on because our normal press outlets aren't doing the same thing. So it's a real shame though, I have to say, Patrick, although the only mitigation, I suppose, as far as the Japanese are concerned is that they're much more concerned with what's happening in the South China Sea and China uh, and Taiwan than they are with Russia. But of course, in our view, everyone should be concerned with what's happening in Ukraine.
1: Well, this seems to be the theme of the week is pronunciation because we've got one here from Slavik. Uh, I think I've got that right. It's S-L-A-W-E-K. I think Slavik would be, would be as it should be said. We were talking last week about you say Sevastopol, I say Sevastopol. He said, I want to drop you a line to say that the English version from years ago was pronounced with a B. And the reason for this, that the Russian alphabet, which is not derived from Latin, in the Russian alphabet, the letter B is pronounced as V. So somehow, somewhere, folks speaking English as their first language ended up translating, then he's got the uh, Cyrillic for the Black Sea port to Sebastopol. He says, I know this because I'm of the generation when school children in Poland had little choice but to learn Russian at school. As the subject was mandatory. Yeah, we've almost forgotten that. now. Now, I'm just going to add something here from. Askold, our dear friend Askold Kuchelitsky, who says, um, I know that you and Saul try hard to get pronunciation correct. If you're unsure about pronunciation, you can call me anytime to check. Well, thanks for for Askold. So he he says, um, he gives us a couple of of tips straight away. There's one that you got wrong earlier, Saul. He says, For Ukrainian and Russian, uh, uh, E I V A N S, the I in Ivan is pronounced as E. As in lad, which our non-British uh, listeners is a, is a joke about Yorkshire people. They meant to always say "ibagum." Uh, anyway, so it's Ivan, uh, not Ivan, as you said earlier. So, uh, which is how the Welsh apparently pronounce it. He goes on to say that the "mai" in Maidan, which, i.e., the square in uh, in Kiev, where we were the other day, uh, is pronounced just that, just like that. "My." Not, he says, like a distraught, alluring maiden waiting to be rescued by a knight of the round table. <laughs> and then he, he confirms, yes, it's Sevastopol, not Sebastopol. And he blames early translations of war and peace for this. Anyway, but we, we've got a bit of a problem. You know, with these pronunciations, you don't want to get too overboard, do you? I mean, I heard someone pronouncing it the other day as... Sevastopol, Sevastopol, which sounds to me more authentic, but we're not going to be, start using that, are we? So I think there's a sort of happy medium where you make it as authentic as you can without baffling the listeners.
0: Yeah, this may be a bad analogy, Patrick, but it reminds me of the days when I was writing historical fiction and there came the question of whether or not you were going to actually try and write phonetically someone's accents. So it could have been someone from the East End of London, it could have been a Cockney, but it could, of <laughs> course, have been lots of different <laughs> nationalities. And actually the best advice that was given to me by my editor was don't even go there it'll look like a complete you know uh, mishmash uh, you'll butcher everything just right in plain english and describe the fact that this is in an irish accent and let people make up their own minds and that was the sensible way to do it i think yeah
1: yeah or, or should i say plus because there's another little addition from Askell that says that apparently the uh the ukrainian military uh, in military speak on the battlefield instead of saying roger or affirmative you say PLUS, pronounced that way, PLUS, P-L-U-S. So though I sound a bit like Alan Partridge here. <laughs> I, better, I better stop there.
0: Good stuff. Okay, we've got a good question here from Joachim Zander, uh, who I suspect is probably Dutch, although he doesn't say one way or another. But anyway, Joachim asked the question, is there any knowledge about if the Russians are building more defensive lines in those areas where the Ukrainians broke through the first one or two lines of the three that we always hear about? I personally cannot imagine that they wouldn't be doing that, building new lines, knowing for weeks and weeks the respective locations where their enemy, the Ukrainians, were pushing forward strongly. Well, we do have a bit of information about this, Joachim, actually. Because um, Tokmak, which we keep uh, referencing, this absolutely vital road and rail hub, if the Ukrainians can get to it, just to repeat the point, they will have fire control over Melitopol and that main route of supply, east-west supply, the so-called land bridge. Well, Tokmak. We now know, and this is coming from Ukrainian intelligence and other sources, the Russians are scrabbling around to build defences. They're building. They're trying to build tank traps. Uh, they're trying to build trenches. But the reality is that they're doing this hurriedly because of the success of the Ukrainians. And there is no possibility that they're going to be able to build the sort of uh, defensive positions that are anything like as comparable to what the Ukrainians have already managed to break through. So. They are scrabbling around, of course they're bound to be doing that, and it'll just emphasise two things, really: the importance of Top Mac, but also the panic that these Ukrainian successes have already produced in the Russian
1: army. Got a question here from Nick, and I'm interested to hear your historical take on this from the nineteenth century Saul. and Nick asks, uh, how does Ukraine take back Crimea? He said he's watched the way they've taken down the s four hundred air defences mounted those raids on the oil platforms etc etc but he says you know how easy is this going to be he's recently been reading about the difficulties the german army had in world war ii taking crimea from the soviets he said it was an eight month long campaign and some of the bloodiest battles of the war well you're quite right about that nick the siege of sevastopol or the operation to take sevastopol took eight months and four days that was from october the 41 to july 42, and this was actually when the Red Army was on the back foot. It was very, very weak, but they still managed to launch an amphibious landing at Kerch, which relieved the, the pressure that went off in the mid-winter, mid the depths of winter. It really must have been quite a thing in December 41. It took the Germans all the way until June 42 before they were in a position to properly besiege the place. And it began with, with Sevastopol, that, that is. And it began with a huge air operation, which was absolutely vast. It outdid the Luftwaffe's bombing campaigns in on Warsaw, Rotterdam, London, etc. And by the time they finished, only eleven buildings were left undamaged. So I think the point here is that it's it's a huge, huge problem, military problem, uh, taking the Crimea proper. What what does your knowledge of the Crimean War tell you, so?
0: Yeah. And the other historical uh, parallel, Patrick, is going back to the Crimean War in the 19th century, 1854 to 1856. Well, the siege of Sebastopol was really from the end of 1854 to the summer of 1855, when the French it was, not the British. uh, It was, of course, an Anglo-French expeditionary force supported by the Sardinians and also the Turks. But the main uh, striking power was British and French. And it was actually the French who made the final breakthrough into Sevastopol with their storm troops in the summer of 1855. But, you know, the overall point here is it was an incredibly difficult nut to crack. So the question from Nick is, is it going to be the same again? Well, I don't think so, Nick. And the big difference between now and then is that the Ukrainians are, are seeing the much bigger picture. They are, of course, a neighbouring power, whereas uh, back in the 19th century, the French and the British had actually landed an amphibious landing, very difficult to do on the Crimean Peninsula. Well, the Ukrainians are in a much better strategic position. What they're really going to do with Crimea is not retake it by force. They're going to isolate it. They're going to sever the Kerch Bridge and they're going to make sure that no supplies can come in from the other way by severing the land bridge from Russia to Crimea. And as a result, they're going to force the Russians to surrender. So it's not going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be a strategic isolation of Crimea, which will put them in a very strong position. So I'm not envisaging another siege of Sevastopol because I don't think it needs to come to that.
1: Well, the next one I, I'm not going to attempt to answer because I think John has uh, John Bell, who's who's sent this in, has pretty much provided the answer himself. Uh, he says thank you for the excellent podcast. My only issue is I wish the episodes were more frequent and or longer. Not sure about that. Sort of, here we go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he says I I've got a question about mind clearance in frozen ground having broken a spade trying to dig up leaks from frozen ground here in sussex last winter i wonder how viable it is to clear mines in the depths of winter iced ground can be extraordinarily hard and difficult to penetrate the course of the war suggests the ukrainians will be needing to pass through minefields for a long time to come do you think this will still be possible once winter sets in well, I don't I don't know. Uh, but I, I, all I would say conversely is it makes it equally difficult, I would have thought, to plant any more what mines so that I would have thought the kind of military situation is kind of uh, literally and metaphorically frozen. Got any thoughts on that, sort?
0: Yeah, we'll go back to the Tokmak uh, question we've just dealt with. And the reality is that the Ukrainians are almost through the, the main belts, the thickest belts of minefields. So it's a question of them planting new ones now. and And, you know, as you say, Patrick, the same... Argument is going to work both ways. Well, yes, they could do it in the next few weeks, but it, they simply don't have time. And what's what's interesting about the fluidity of the battlefield, or or the possible fluidity of the battlefield, is that there is a distance between the Russians are defending now and where they are going to try and defend in Tokmak. And you can't lace the whole area with mines. So you've now got to decide where your main new main line of resistance is. Is it going to be close to Tokmak? And if it is, you know, you've got all the security issues of how you're going to get through that. New, those new defenses to support the troops further afield so it's not a simple equation either way
1: and it's by no means the actual laying of the mines it makes you extremely vulnerable uh, you're going to be identified pretty well immediately by surveillance drones i would have thought and then you're vulnerable to artillery fires so i wouldn't want to be uh, going out and planting mines uh, anywhere near the front line if i was a russian um Interesting point here from Dave Anderson, who says, apart from the political and morale benefits of liberating a town, what are the military operational benefits? Uh, Is it somewhere to live, eat? Is it easier to defend? Is it a good launch pad for other operations? Does that all apply to the small demolished villages too? Well, I'll I'll just make a few quick points. I I think there is obviously a a morale and political benefit, a big symbolic importance attached to Bakhmut, uh, for example. And there is a bit of a, a sort of military benefit. I mean you'll be living in a wasteland, but you will actually have roads getting you your supplies in and out. The ruins will provide you with a large amount of cover. And there are also good defensive positions against a counterattack. So yeah, there's the even though you are inheriting in in this case, if you've seen the images of any of these liberated towns and villages. I mean, they are moonscapes. There's not barely a roof on a a building, but like I say, there still are some sort of uh, tactical benefits. What do you think, Sean?
0: Yeah, I mean, the real key point about towns, uh, and we're getting into urban warfare chat here now, uh, Patrick, is that their their chief benefit is to the defender rather than the attacker. The attacker wants to take them, but only to deprive the defender of that ability to, you know, to stop you moving forward. So Stalingrad ultimately becomes such a difficult place to take and back moot for that matter, because once the buildings get reduced and it turns into as you say this moonscape it's it's much easier to defend than it is actually to attack so somewhere like uh, Robertinier, for example is a great defensive position and once you've taken it you've basically managed to infiltrate into the strong defensive position of the enemy so you've got to sort sort of see it almost in negative terms it's not of massive value to the attacker per se apart from the fact that you've actually obviously created a you know quite a sizable wedge into the opposition's defence. And this is particularly relevant in what's happening in Western Zaporizhia, because those towns that you can see that are falling slowly but surely, or those settlements, were keystones to the Russian defensive position. Okay, we've got a question here from Gretchen, and she asks, how is it that a country with a GDP smaller than Italy, and of course she means Russia, is able to prosecute an, an expensive war and also at a time when it's under sanctions? How long can this realistically go on? It just seems, says Gretchen, like there must be a lot of strain in Russia that we don't see or hear about. Patrick, what do you think?
1: It is one of the mysteries of this war, isn't it, Saul? Uh, at the outset, a lot of optimistic noises were made about the effect sanctions were going to have on Russia's ability to maintain uh, its war effort. But here, here we are—you know, all this time later—and it still seems to be going strong. On the political front, there don't seem to be any real impacts on the standard of living of, of ordinary Russians, etc. Certainly not to the point where you're going to get to nineteen. 19- uh, 17, uh, when people come out of the streets because basically the war is making their lives uh, unbearable. Now I'm no economist, but it is it's, it's very strange, and I haven't read anything that actually provides an answer. You're absolutely right. Russia's economic performance is is certainly not commensurate with its claims to be a world superpower. It's number 11th. Its GDP is 11th in the world listings, which puts it, you know, just a, just ahead of Brazil, I think. Now the main contributor to the economy, actually to the GDP, should I say, is service. Now service is a very broad sector, but it, it, it really is what it what it sounds like: it's people doing things for other people. That fifty seven percent of GDP comes from that, so it's all internally generated GDP, if you like. It employs astonishing two thirds of the population, are, in, are actually in the in the service sector. But the thing that actually makes them their money is oil and gas. Now that that uh, provides 17,17% of GDP. And I think that's where the, perhaps the keys of the whole thing. That's where the, the, these oil exports, which seem to have been able to circum... Uh, oil and gas exports, energy exports, we seem to have been able to circumvent sanctions very successfully with customers in what we used to call the third world, uh, China, India, Africa, uh, et cetera. I mean, they, they get they keep the cash flowing, and that's very, very essential to keeping the population happy. So I think that there is quite a lot of sort of fat still left there. And certainly in terms of a political Effect, sanctions uh, still really haven't uh, come into play. But having said all that, you know, there is no growth in Russia. There's minus growth in in Russia. It's uh, down minus 6% this year. So, in time, hopefully it won't come to that, but in time, if the war does continue for a considerable period to come, then inevitably it must do something uh, to dramatically reduce their ability to wage war. Okay, I've got one. uh, hear a bit of a blast from the past, which is from Richard Appleby, uh, who says, uh, I'm interested in the medical support to the Ukrainian military. There's hardly any reporting on this. Presumably, the government's PR people think it's too risky. Now, he says, recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan saw massive advances in military medical abilities. And I wonder if this progress has been continued with this conventional war. He's asking, how do they Kasevac without air superiority? How are military casualties integrated into the civilian system? Now, I think we're not really in a position to answer that today, but it's something we're certainly going to be looking at. It is a fascinating part of the war. But I just have to say, I too know uh, Dr. Appleby. We first met in Afghanistan in 2008 when he was an army doctor. And we met again about seven or eight years later when I was having a rather embarrassing operation done on my rear end in the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. I was lying face down on the operating table when the doctor asked me whether I was the same Patrick Bishop who'd been in forward operating base inkerman, that'll ring a bell for, for you, Saul, uh, 10 miles up the Hellman River from Sangin in southern Afghanistan in the summer of 2008. So um, I replied that indeed it was. And so while Richard got on with his work, we had a fascinating conversation about our time in Fob-Inkerman, which the nurses found hilarious. <laughs> so I should say I was only there a few days and Richard was there for a, a hell of a long time, but it was, it was a pretty grim place to be. Well, good to hear from you again, Richard. As I say, this is something we'll be looking at, so uh, stay tuned.
0: Yeah, and just an added bit of detail on that, Patrick. I mean, I I read a statistic a couple of days ago. I mean, and we should mention that Zelensky, when just before he spoke in New York to the United Nations General Assembly, went to see a lot of uh, victims from the Ukrainian war that is, Ukrainian servicemen who are being treated for their injuries in America. And a lot of them are limbless. And apparently, something like 50,000 Ukrainian soldiers have lost one or more limbs, which tells you two things, of course. One, that the casualties have been very heavy, but two, that an awful lot of people are surviving the type of wounds that would have killed people in earlier conflicts. And that, without question, is partly down to these improved uh, medical protocols that were honed during Afghanistan and Iraq.
1: That's a really interesting contribution, so we'll, we'll be returning to that. Well, anyway, that's enough for us this week Do join us on Wednesday for the final part of our travelogue when we're reflecting on it all from the Polish city of Krakow. And then, of course, do come back on Friday when we'll be having another deep dive into the week's news. Goodbye.
0: I'd like to just add on a personal note that pretty much since we started the Ukraine element of the Battleground podcast, I've been getting daily messages from my mum, Cherry, Uh, giving me pointers about news stories and anything relevant to Ukraine. Well, sadly, a couple of days ago, those messages stopped when my mum passed away. She'll be much missed.